Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And just as a disclaimer, I don't use these often, but today's case is going to involve a horrific crime against children, and listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. And for no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Warfare during the time of the American Revolution was supposed to be a civilized affair. Working-class volunteers made up the majority of the infantry soldiers of the day, and they were used like pawns in a game of chess by the more educated officers. Seen as expendable, these infantry soldiers were fair game for enemies to target with direct and indirect fire as battles were decided by attrition rates and retreats. Muskets of the day were powerful but inaccurate over distance as their barrels lacked any rifling to spin the mostly round balls of lead that were fired from them. After a short distance of roughly 30 to 40 yards, the accuracy of such weapons was more at the mercy of the effects of wind and imperfections of the barrels and musket balls themselves. But a group of soldiers under the command of Captain Daniel Morgan used state-of-the-art rifles with grooved bullets that could be accurate out to 300 yards. This meant the British officers who normally sat behind their troops on horses at safe distances from musket fire could be struck down by Morgan's sharpshooters. While effective, this tactic was highly controversial at the time and drew complaints from the British Army and even George Washington. But when Washington wanted to invade Canada to further the war effort, Morgan and his men were selected as part of the initial invasion force. Serving under the famous Benedict Arnold, Morgan was forced to take command when Arnold was wounded in the leg. The invasion failed and the British were victorious in defending Quebec and Morgan was captured as a prisoner of war. As part of a prisoner exchange in 1777, he was promoted to colonel for his bravery in Quebec. He would serve with great distinction for the remainder of the war and was promoted to general in 1780. After the war, he retired and was briefly recalled to action to suppress the Whiskey Rebellion. He is regarded as one of the greatest military tacticians of the Revolutionary War. Mel Gibson's character in the 2000 movie The Patriot is based on Daniel Morgan and his military command. Many cities, towns, and counties in America carry the name Morgan in honor of his contributions to the founding of the country. One of those counties is Morgan County, Indiana. This picturesque Midwest county between Indianapolis and Bloomington is filled with rolling hills and waterways, a result of being at the exact stopping point for glaciers during the last ice age. It's a quiet county with only 70,000 total residents, but in 2000, it was the scene of a grisly and terrible suicide attempt that left six children and one adult dead. This is the story of the Indiana Seven. On March 25, 2000, around 4.55 p.m., motorists on State Highway 67 in Morgan County, Indiana, were in a state of shock and terror. A 1989 Pontiac Firebird filled with children was being driven the wrong way down the highway at high speed by a woman. For 87 seconds, or just shy of a minute and a half, 
the car accelerated into oncoming traffic as motorists avoided the car. Eventually, one vehicle coming the opposite way failed to notice the deadly projectile in time, and the two vehicles hit head-on with a combined speed of around 150 miles per hour or 240 kilometers per hour. Of the nine people in the two vehicles, seven would lose their lives that day. The driver of the wrong-way vehicle and one child survived, and immediately the question started. Mainly how and why did something this tragic happen, and to answer those questions, we need to go back in time and talk about that surviving adult, Judy Kirby. Judy Kirby was born on November 14, 1968. Not much is available in terms of information about her early life, so we will begin her story sometime shortly before the crash. By 2000, Judy had eight children, and it appears at least the younger children were shared with her ex-husband, Victor Kirby. The three children mentioned in the research are 12-year-old Jordan Kirby, 9-year-old Joni Kirby, and 5-year-old Jacob Kirby. No names or ages are known on her other five children, although it was mentioned Judy had just given birth to her eighth child five months before the crime we are discussing in this episode. On March 2, 2000, three weeks before the crash, Judy had been involuntarily committed to the hospital for mental health issues. It was said she was acting depressed and paranoid. She had been wearing disguises, placing cameras in trees, talking about committing suicide, and reported that people were watching and following her. It was also said that she had been transporting drugs in the recent past, and she expressed fear that police would arrest her for her actions. The doctors that were treating her in early March noted she showed signs of depression and also noted low levels of chemicals in her thyroid that just suggested she was having issues. In women, issues with hormones produced by the thyroid can increase the severity of things like postpartum depression. Judy was supposed to stay at the hospital for 72 hours, but after being treated with an antipsychotic for two days, she was deemed fit to be released from her stay. And now this is something not a lot of people understand. Most states have laws in place that allow police officers or medical professionals to put somebody on what's called a 72-hour hold. Uh, it has different names. It's referred to as different things. A mental health hold, a involuntary civil commitment for 72 hours. Whatever it's called is all referring to the same thing. And basically what it is, it's the state has recognized that there are times in people's lives when they represent a danger to themselves or others if they aren't seen by medical professionals. And so despite America having some of the strongest personal rights in the world, it is recognized that because there could be a danger to others and that's putting other people's civil liberties and, and, and rights in danger, in certain circumstances, police officers or these medical professionals can force somebody against their will to seek hospitalization and treatment. And this is probably one of the most misunderstood uh, powers that, that police officers or medical professionals have because it is, is not all-reaching. There are certain requirements that have to be met. Mainly, it's that that person is a danger to themselves or others. And this is really important because there's a lot of mental illness out there where somebody is, for lack of better terms, crazy. 
However, their crazy behavior, their crazy actions aren't dangerous to themselves or others. So if that person wants to sit in their house and talk about people coming out of the walls and ceilings and all that kind of stuff and and have grand delusions and think that they're you know the second coming of Christ whatever it might be if they're not saying that any of this behavior is going to cause them to hurt themselves or others there's nothing illegal civilly or criminally about having a mental illness where police and medical people will get involved is when that manifests into somebody making threats against somebody else or themselves. If that person says, the next person that comes to my door, I'm going to blow them away because they're the Antichrist, they're after me, then you have to fear because now maybe a relative's going to show up to check on them, something's going to happen, and, and eventually they're going to harm somebody else. Or the, the most simple is that they're suicidal and they say that they want to take their own life. If this, these things happen and there's police officers or mental health professionals can sign a legal document stating that this person needs to be seen and needs to get care. Now, that does not mean that that person is going to go away for 72 hours. As in the case with Judy, it's basically at that point up to the doctors on the receiving end of this patient to decide when it is safe to release this patient. And there are many circumstances where doctors will release somebody because that person knows what they need to say or how they need to act in order to get released. And in reality, nothing has really changed and that person will then go home and commit suicide. That person will go home and harm somebody else. And again, it's not on the doctors. Their, their job is just to treat these people and they can't treat something like a mental illness if the person isn't going to cooperate with the doctor. So again, I'm not faulting the doctors here per se. It's just, it's a difficult situation. Police officers are put in that decision-making process where they have to decide if they're going to remove somebody's civil rights and force them to go to a hospital and get treated. And then the doctors there are then the onus is on them to decide whether or not this person is okay. And, and sometimes I've seen cases where people have psychotic episodes and they are a completely different person when I see them. And then a couple of days later, we go to check on the person after they've been released. And when they're medicated, they're, they're just a normal person and you could not tell at all that they had a mental illness. So it does work in most cases where you're getting the person that help and they're not in a position to prop to make that choice uh, on their own and so that kind of sounds like what's going on with judy here is that she's got this paranoia she's suffering from postpartum depression she's got issues with her thyroid and within a couple days at the hospital and that's all it usually takes with proper medication and this diagnosis and and whatnot she's able to convince a doctor that she's feeling better and has her wits about her more and they release her from the hospital after after these two days. Now, that 72 hours doesn't mean that after 72 hours, if the person's not better yet, that they're kicked out of the hospital. It, the 72 hours just gives doctors and social workers and the courts and everything like that time in case 
the the person needs to be held longer. So the, the person can be held longer. That 72 hours just gets them in the door. But I would say the vast majority of people are going to be released before those 72 hours are up. And when she was released, she was sent home with several medications, but it was later believed that she stopped taking these medications as her paranoia, especially in regards to medical advice, grew. And that's really the difficulty with the 72-hour hold is it's a Band-Aid solution if the person is having chronic ongoing mental health issues that 72 hours isn't going to be enough to completely change everything and if they're like judy having paranoia issues added into that and then immediately stop taking their medications they're going to revert back to the way they were when they went into the 72 hour hold pretty quickly And then between March 4th, which is when she was released from the hospital, and March 25th, the day of the crash, she experienced further mental health issues, and she was under stress because of a failing relationship. So sometime after her split with her husband, she had started a relationship with Victor's brother, Tinny Kirby. So it's difficult as I'm doing this research to kind of figure out everything that's going on with Judy and her life here. Uh, whether it be the fact that these eight children she had, uh, what their ages were, if they're with all with Victor Kirby, her ex-husband, or not. Uh, again, there's there's only reference to certain ones, uh, certain children in the articles. And so what I try to do is I try to read all these different articles and piece together the parts of the articles that all match up to certain degrees like in the case of this where it's talking about tinny kirby so tinny kirby is the brother of her ex-husband and it sounds like again sometime after her and her ex-husband split which i don't know how long that was because again i don't know if this child she gave birth to five months ago was with her husband victor or could this have been tinny's child i don't know There's nothing in the research to indicate one way or the other. But what I do know is that she's having these relationship problems now with her ex-husband's brother. And this is because at some point before March 25th, Tinny told Judy that while he wanted a relationship with her, he couldn't have one with her because she had so many children. This devastated Judy and she wrote down her interpretation of what Tinny said on the phone and used these words in part of a suicide letter she wrote. And again, this was actually in a, in a newspaper clipping that was just shown on an image. So somebody, some reporter at some point wrote a real quick write-up back in 2000 about this. And so from the article, the, the little bit that was there, it seemed to me that, and again, I'm going to read into some of this stuff, that... I'm guessing the child that she had five months prior to the crash was not Tinny's child because there was nothing in there about our child. It was all about the children that you have. And so then she's put into this position where she's already having mental health issues. She wants to be with Tinny, but she has eight children, several of them with Tinny's brother, Victor. And now, again, she's using these words and i don't think anybody ever at least from the source material i saw talked to tinny to find out if these were words that he actually said Uh, she would just admit to investigators later that she 
wrote down these words as they talked about stuff, and this is how she heard things. And again, with her mental health issues, we don't know if this is what Tinny said or not. This was never confirmed in any sources, but leading up to the day of the crash, again, she has a lot on her plate from both mental illness side, from relationship side, from kids side. I mean, I have three boys. I cannot imagine having eight children. And again, some of these are children are older. And, and for all I know, the, the four that aren't mentioned, because she's got the three and then the that are going to be involved in this crash and then the newborn. And so somewhere out there, there's four other children that aren't mentioned at all. So for all I know, they, they could be much older, but, but still, she's got a lot on her plate. I think that's, that's safe to say. And then on March 25th, she left her home in Indianapolis around 11.30 a.m. in her 1989 Pontiac Firebird. In her vehicle with her was her 10-year-old nephew, Jeremy Young. And it's said in one of the articles that she had adopted Jeremy as her own son, and it was Jeremy's 10th birthday that day, and she drove from her house to her sister's house in Acton, where three of her children had been staying. So what I don't know is, did she leave some children at her house in Indianapolis? Was there somebody there, I'm assuming, watching the children? There's a five-month-old that's unaccounted for at this point. So was somebody watching the five-year-old and watching some other children? She had this 10-year-old nephew that she adopted. I don't know if that's part of the eight children that people talk about. So if she had seven of her own and adopted Jeremy, or whether she had eight of her own and, and Jeremy makes nine. Uh, but it, it definitely sounds like when she left the home, she left with just Jeremy and drove to her sister's house where three of her children have been staying. So she arrives at her sister's house around noon, and her sister is Jeanietta Scott, and she stays for a couple of hours. She left at 2 p.m. with her nephew Jeremy, and now she has her three children, Jordan, Joni, and Jacob. And there's a lot of J's in this story. Uh, I pretty much think just about everybody in this family has a J name. Jeanetta was following Judy as she drove the four children to Toys R Us in Greenwood, Indiana, so Jeremy could pick out a present for his birthday. Jeanietta would later testify that her sister was in a bad state of mind and she had been taking turns with her other sisters watching Judy and trying to make sure she was okay. After leaving the store, Jeanietta lost sight of Judy in traffic around 2.30 p.m. Jeanietta had been in front of Judy and Judy got stuck at a red light. Jeanietta waited for Judy, but then decided to turn around thinking Judy had car trouble, but upon returning to the area that she had last saw Judy, she realized her sister's car and her sister and all the kids were gone. Police would later seek out any witnesses to Judy and her car full of children prior to the crash. A man on nearby Ralston Road remembered seeing Judy and the kids around 3.15pm when she stopped in front of his house. He said that Judy stared at him for a couple minutes before driving off. Around 3.45, two women remembered seeing Judy parked in the middle of the road in front of their house. They approached her and asked her if she needed help. She asked to borrow a phone from one of them, and they gave her their home's cordless phone. Judy drove off with the phone, and then the women used another phone in the home to call 911. But Judy returned two minutes later and gave back the phone and then sat in the driveway staring for five minutes before leaving the area. And when I first read this, I, 
I guess they didn't refer to it in the one article I saw as a, a home phone, so I assumed because she drove off with it that it was a cell phone. And this is 2000. People are starting to have cell phones, so it wouldn't have been completely unbelievable that somebody had a cell phone and, and gave it to her and then she drove off with it because then now she has a mobile phone. Uh, but from the sounds of it, the other article is very specific and said that this was one of the home's cordless phones. And so now that most people don't have home phones, it's just those of us that are old enough to remember. <laughs> when I first growing up, we had the the phones with the cords. I mean, what, my parents still actually had one of the rotary dial phones where you had to dial each number individually around in a circle and let it come back. Um, but then, you know, we graduated into the push button phones where you could just push the number you wanted to dial um, and then eventually you know we had cordless phones and that was you had a base station and then you could carry the phone a certain distance away from that the base station of the phone and then it would be cordless and you could talk anywhere in your house on your phone and and really before cell phones that was kind of the peak of phone technology However, these phones did not work very far from that base. So I don't know if Judy thought she could use this phone, drive somewhere, make a phone call, but by the time this phone, I'd be surprised if it even worked out on the street in front of the house, just depending on how strong the signal was and, and how far away the street was from the home. But even if it worked there, her driving down to just the end of the block, this phone's not going to work anymore. So maybe she thought she would have a somewhat of a cell phone or mobile phone, or maybe when they handed her the phone, she thought it was some type of cell phone or, or mobile phone or something like that. And then when she tried to make a call on it, she realized it wasn't and decided to return the phone. Um, it did mention again that these women called 911, but there was no mention of any police responding to the incident. And if they did, it was after Judy left, and they wouldn't know that she, what her intentions were or what was going to happen until after the crash. At 4 p.m., Judy and the kids arrived at a stranger's baby shower in the clubhouse of the Valley Brook Mobile Home Park. And when she entered the clubhouse with the children, people at the shower stated she told them she needed help. They asked her what kind of help she needed, and she told them she needed a birthday party. The shower attendees believed Judy had just arrived at the wrong clubhouse and pointed her in the direction of the mobile home park's other clubhouse. So for your, those of you not in America and not familiar, we have what are called trailer parks or mobile home parks where they're single wide or double wide manufactured homes sit on a small lot. You've got some parks are 20 or 30 of these homes, some parks are well over 100. And then there's often shared amenities within the park, playgrounds, um, in this case, a couple clubhouses, gathering places, meeting places, because the mobile homes usually aren't really that large and capable of hosting a large party. So these the members of the park could rent out these clubhouses. So when they show up at this clubhouse unannounced, nobody knows them, they don't know anybody there, and she says she needs help. And they asked what type of help. She said she was looking for a birthday party. Well, they interpret that as she's arriving at a shower looking for a party. The other clubhouse maybe had a birthday party. She just didn't know there was two clubhouses. In reality, I think she was probably, under the mental duress that she was under, she was probably 
trying to last minute throw something together for Jeremy because it was his 10th birthday that day and was trying to have some type of resemblance of a party, I guess. And they just misunderstood her. And then Judy would drive 21.5 miles to Martinsville, Indiana. And at 4.45, she arrived at a gas station on the edge of town. Judy and the four children entered the gas station where she spent $3 for gas and candy bars. The station attendant said Judy needed help filling her car with gas. When I first read this, I mean, it's it's hard sometimes in 2023 to read stuff where uh, payment is made for something like gas and when it's $3, but I was... I'd been driving for a few years by 2000, and when I first started driving, gas in America was around 88 cents a gallon. Around 2000 is probably in about the dollar a gallon range, somewhere around there, depending on where you are in the country and what time of the year it is. Uh, But I would just estimate that at this point in time, uh, about if she spent a dollar fifty in gas, that would get her probably a gallon and a half. And then a dollar fifty of candy bars would get her enough for probably four candy bars for the kids. So she's not putting a ton of gas in the car, but she's getting a decent amount if she's near empty for what she's about to do. And after leaving the gas station, Judy entered the southbound lanes of State Road 67 at the exit to Pumpkinville Road. She entered the ramp from the wrong direction and began driving into wrongway traffic at the top of the ramp. She accelerated the speeds of between 55 to 100 miles per hour, depending on the witness. She had a window down with her hair blowing around as the kids climbed around the car unrestrained. Witnesses stated she took no evasive actions to slow down or avoid any oncoming traffic. And estimating speed is a hard thing to do. I remember when I was training to become a police officer, part of our our skills training, we spent a day out in training vehicles that had radar equipped to them and the entire purpose of that day there was a couple people in the car and you would trade off but the entire purpose of that day was to witness cars traveling at speed and you had to try to guess the speed they were traveling at and then you turn on the radar and see how close you were and the more you practice it the better you got you kind of got an idea for looking at how fast a car is moving to then turn around and estimate the speed because technically in america Police are supposed to visually observe a vehicle traveling at a high rate of speed and then confirm that with a radar or laser device. It's not supposed to be something that they rely solely on this this device to read the speed. Uh, It's it's supposed to be used as a confirmation device is, is basically how most states approach it. And so when I went through this training, and of course at the beginning of the day, you'd see a car, especially one coming the opposite direction, you'd be like, oh, that car has to be going like 60 miles an hour, and you turn on the radar, it's you know 45 or 50. And then by the end of the day, you'd have pretty good estimation of how fast cars were going. And again, it just takes practice, but when you're in a situation, high stress, a car is coming the opposite way, head on with you in traffic, it's probably going to look like it's going a lot faster than it really is. And then it also depends on early on, maybe it was only doing 55 and then later on it's it's doing close to 100 miles an hour. So that the whole 45 miles an hour difference can be for a variety of reasons, but uh, we'll get to a closer to what they believe the estimated speed was at the time of the crash here in a little bit. This pattern of driving continued for 87 seconds and roughly 1.7 miles before she struck a van head-on. 
The van was driven by 40-year-old Thomas Reel and he had three passengers. Two of the passengers, 13-year-old Bradley and 14-year-old Jessica, were his children, and the other one was Bradley's friend, 13-year-old Richard Miller. The impact of the vehicles coming together was described as catastrophic. The real van was thrown into the air and landed on its side, while Judy's car was crumpled by the impact. The estimated combined speeds of the two vehicles were around 150 miles per hour, with Judy's car traveling upwards of 90 miles per hour at the time of impact. And what a lot of people don't realize is when two cars collide head on, it's the absorbed energy of both speeds get applied to both vehicles. So basically, if a car is traveling, if these two cars are traveling at at 45 miles an hour and run into each other, the combined speed of 90 miles an hour, it would be as if the one car traveling alone at 90 miles an hour ran into something. Uh, the the opposite force, like I said, doubles the, the, the force on impact. So in this case, I think we're estimating her car driving at 90 miles an hour, estimating he's on a highway, he's driving 60 miles an hour. The two coming together, it'd be the same as if you took a car at 150 miles an hour and drove it into a brick wall. Uh, like I said, this, her car, photos of her car showed, I mean, there's just not much left of it. It's just a crumpled mess of metal. Uh, I didn't see pictures of the van, but it, it almost sounded as the van was more of a glancing impact. I mean, obviously still very severe, but it sent the van up in the air and onto its side, so it didn't get as crumpled up as the car did, but uh, the force of the impact was definitely enough to unfortunately be fatal for, for three of its occupants. And the impact threw Judy from the car, and she suffered a head injury and broken bones, but survived. And all four children in her vehicle were pronounced dead at the scene. And in the real van, Tom and his two children had been killed instantly, but somehow, thankfully, Roger Miller survived, although he suffered permanent injuries to his back and right foot. And this is something that we see all too often. Uh, usually these head-on crashes in America, they're the result of, uh, of a DWI situation where somebody's drank too much alcohol and can't understand that they're driving the wrong way on the interstate and they end up hitting head-on with another vehicle and there's been scientific studies some of it is that the alcohol level basically makes the person looser so that they can absorb the impact of these crashes better other times it's just blind luck but it, it seems all too often you'll read in these cases where there's a dwi fatal accident that it's not the person who drank and got behind the wheel of the car that ends up dying it's it's somebody the innocent passenger or drivers in the other vehicles and so judy wasn't as far as we know intoxicated but and usually it's the people thrown from the vehicle that end up dying and the people inside the car are the ones that are that are okay uh, especially if they're wearing their seat belts but None of the kids were wearing their seatbelts. They were unrestrained, so their their bodies would have taken the full impact of this crash. I said as if as if their bodies were hitting a brick wall at 150 miles an hour. And I I don't know if Tom and his kids were restrained. And and, and some crashes like this, it, it often it just it doesn't matter whether you're restrained or not. Uh, but in this case, you know Judy somehow survived this. 
and first responders to the scene experienced significant initial and ongoing trauma due to the mental processing and damage done by seeing the effects of the crash on the seven children. And I remember this myself. I was at several different fatal accidents, and it, it, it is, it, it's sad and it's disturbing when it's an adult uh, and, and it's a fatal accident. It is devastating uh, when that death is a child, whether it be an accident or some type of a medical emergency or a homicide or whatever it might be. Any effect mentally on the, the trauma, emotionally the trauma, is multiplied by a factor of 100 uh, when it's a child involved. So when you've got seven children, six fatally injured, and, and one, uh, even though he survived, he was, he was pretty injured, that's again the that's taking its a huge toll on the first responders investigators looking into the accident were able to determine judy was not applying any brakes at the time of the incident and this is done crash investigators can look if you are applying brakes which mean your brake lights are illuminated the filament in the bulb that illuminates those brake lights the heat that's running uh, due to the filament being lit up actually makes the that filament more malleable so the force of the impact on a warm filament will either bend it or break it whereas if it's sitting there without any brakes applied it's cold it's firm and there's not going to be any warping to the filament itself so they're able to look at these lights. And this was more, especially more common, obviously, with the filament-style light bulbs that would have been in a 1989 Firebird than today's LED uh, bulbs. Uh, so it's, I don't know how if, if they can do this stuff now. Now, of course, there's way more computers and stuff inside of cars with the information that uh, can be stored inside the car's computers and that kind of stuff. So I'm sure... There's a lot more now that crash investigators can do, but this was one of the things they relied on in these older vehicles, and they're able to determine in this case that Judy had not applied any pressure to the brakes uh, prior to impact. When Judy Kirby was taken to the hospital to be treated for her injuries, and investigators immediately questioned her about what happened that afternoon. She would claim to have little to no knowledge of what happened that day, and claimed to love her children and would never do anything to harm them. On April 14, 2000, Judy was arrested on seven counts of murder, four counts of neglect, and one count of aggravated battery. Prior to her trial, motions were filed as to what evidence could be presented. The defense seemed to win the majority of the motions, with Judy's possible drug involvement ruled inadmissible, and the prosecution did win a small victory by gaining the ability to bring Judy's depression history into the trial. Now, it was said that an out-of-county jury was used, and this is often something that's requested by the defense. Um, this was so heavily covered in Morgan County that they probably felt that anybody from Morgan County was not going to give her a fair trial. Remember, the county itself only has about 70,000 people in it total. So in this is kind of small-town America. It's Word is going to travel fast. Opinions are going to be strong. So my guess is that it would be the defense that would ask for a out-of-county 
a jury which was granted and it was interesting because the defense actually requested a speedy trial in this case as well and the only reasoning i could think behind this was potentially just because judy was likely in custody at this point and she was hoping to be able to be found not guilty of these crimes and be released from custody because in most cases it's the defense attorneys that continue these trials and continue these trials and why they're the reason why we don't see cases brought to trial for two to three years after an arrest is made so it was kind of interesting that there was a speedy trial request made in this as well and because of the speedy trial request i think which was made in early 2001 the trial actually began on april 23rd of 2001 which is just a little over a year after this accident happens that's that's pretty quick by criminal trial standards especially ones with charges like this so on april 23rd 2001 the trial of judy kirby began in morgan county during the two-week trial 114 witnesses testified and many of them were first responders that had responded to the grisly and traumatic scene members of judy's family testified that judy had mentioned committing suicide on several occasions Judy's defense relied on her history of psychosis and untreated thyroid issue as mitigating factors for the case. They couldn't deny Judy did what she did, but they tried to paint the picture of her as a woman with no control over her actions that day because of her mental illness. However, an expert witness for the prosecution testified that Judy's actions that day were not in line with what someone suffering from hyperthyroidism would commit. And I can't remember that it's said in their hyperthyroidism, but I thought also the in her original diagnosis it was hypothyroidism, where she, it was a, a lack of um, activity in her thyroid. But um, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever it was, the the expert medical uh, person said these are not behaviors we're going to see from somebody who's got thyroid issues, and the psychosis was often more paranoia based uh, where she was believing seeing people that weren't there or believe she was being followed and all that kind of stuff nothing ever seemed to indicate that she was going to put somebody else in danger based on her mental health issues so i mean the defense had a losing battle here but i, I find it hard that they were going to prove to a jury that she didn't have any control over her actions that day. She had written out a suicide letter. She had made detailed decisions earlier that, that afternoon, uh, was able to communicate with people. It, it just and, and the mere fact of being depressed and having some of these other issues does not excuse you from behavior such as this. And that's really what this trial came down to. And the prosecution argued she was well aware of her actions that day and deliberately drove her car the wrong way in an attempt to kill herself and instead took seven innocent lives. During his closing argument, the prosecutor paused for 87 seconds to highlight how long Judy drove the car the wrong way and how much time she had to reconsider her actions and change the outcome of that day. And I think that's really important in this case because 87 seconds doesn't sound like a lot of time if you just kind of throw it out there but if you were actually to sit there for one minute and 27 seconds like they did in in this courtroom and nobody's saying anything nobody's 
I mean, it doesn't take very long before our brain starts to fill that silence with our own thoughts, before you want to talk, before you want to say something. But in this courtroom environment, it's not going to be allowed. So this is 87 seconds of silence and thought and contemplation. And I think it's pretty powerful because, as I said, probably within the first five to ten seconds, people are already kind of going, this is a long time. Like, this is taking longer than I thought. And then you get to around 20 or 30 seconds and people are, oh, my God, like, how long has it been? And so now it's, you know, get all the way out to 87 seconds and people really realize how long 87 seconds is, especially if you're one of those children in the car uh, as your mom's driving the wrong way and you have to realize that this isn't right and it's dangerous. It was pretty powerful. When the case went to the jury, they deliberated for 10 hours before returning a verdict of guilty on all seven counts of murder. Judy was sentenced to a total of 215 years in prison with some of the sentences running consecutive and some concurrent. For the murders of the Reels, she was sentenced to 65 years per charge to run consecutive for a total of 195 years and 20 years to be served consecutive for the aggravated assault on Bradley Miller. That accounted for the 215 year sentence. For the murders of her own children, she was sentenced to 55 years per murder to be served concurrent and concurrent with her other sentences. So despite that being worth another 220 years total of time, it was really 55 years total since they were all concurrent. And since it was served alongside the 215, it didn't factor into any additional time. And sometimes this is done, I assume, because judges do have to worry about appeals being won for too harsh of convictions and a 215 year sentence alone is is obviously a life in prison without parole type sentence so if, if she would have tacked on the additional 220 years on the back end of that to make it a 435 year sentence i think there would have been some arguments favoring the fact that that is a there would have been some arguments that that was too lengthy of a sentence that could have opened up at least the sentencing to appeal, so they might as well just issue what's deemed a reasonable sentence right from the get-go. And Judy appealed her case several times and lost. Her lawyers tried to take her case to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the court denied hearing the case. In 2014, she requested a retrial, arguing that there's misconduct by the out-of-county jury and her lawyers were ineffective. However, she was denied a retrial. And it is expected that Judy will continue to challenge the system, an understandably sore spot for the widow of Tom who lost her husband and two of her children that day. And this is really something that doesn't get talked about a lot in America, and I know it's this way in several countries, even even more so than in America. Everybody has to be worried about these, the rights of the accused, uh, even after they've been convicted. And what they don't realize is that, A, these people have nothing to do other than she's sitting in prison for the next 215 years, uh, which obviously she's not going to be around at the end of her sentence. So there's really no risk for her to continue to appeal in every way that she can. And she's afforded a lawyer to do these appeals. And what that, you know, while they're ultimately she may not be successful in any of this. 
every time there's an appeal or there's this is getting brought back into the news, it's forcing the victims to relive this, uh, you know, something that they're trying to probably have tried to put behind them for a long time and, and just keep surfacing. And it's, it's kind of at which point do the rights of the victims to just have justice be served and then move on with their lives? Does that not outweigh, you know, the, the fact that this person has had every part of due process afforded to them? You know, they were uh, afforded lawyers and a trial and a and several motions that they won. And it was even their own out-of-county jury that they're now complaining about. And oftentimes you'll see they'll complain, you know, in a case like this, they'll complain that the, the trial was their lawyers were ineffective because it was a speedy trial and it shouldn't have been and that was something that they chose and and again it just at some point you know short of the the innocence project stuff where they're able to prove with dna that somebody wasn't involved or whatever it might be or some really egregious error on the part of the courts that that's just so obvious that it that it should be appealed or that something these throw against the wall and see if they stick style appeals again the only people that it helps is no one and the only people that it hurts is is all the victims of these cases so but as far as we can see judy kirby will thankfully be behind bars for the rest of her life so she can't put anybody else's life in danger and that is the case of the indiana seven Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.